This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne Franks. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne Franz. Hello and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne Franz, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Dr. Jim Bixler, a marriage and family therapist that specializes in working with service members, veterans, and their family members. After that, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network resource of the week, Life Stands Health. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'll be talking about an important aspect of post-military life for many veterans, the need to find meaning and purpose that is as satisfying to them as their military service. Consider what it was like for you when you first realized that you were part of something bigger than yourself. Maybe it was a team in school or arriving for your first day at college. It can be daunting, it's overwhelming, it's exhilarating. That's how many veterans feel about the military. On the show before, we've talked about how the challenges of veteran mental health and the challenges that veterans face in their transition out of the military go beyond just PTSD and TBI. In my work with veterans, there seems to be a single significant concern, the lack of meaning and purpose in their lives. Veterans are intimately familiar with this. Now, there's much to be said about meaning and purpose in our lives. While these questions could just as easily be discussed through the frame of reference of philosophy or spirituality, a mental health professional can certainly support a veteran in determining how to put their doubts about meaning and purpose into place. After all, Jung and Adler were influenced by the philosopher Nietzsche, who was influenced in turn by the philosopher Schopenhauer. Although William James wrote the Principles of Psychology in 1890, he was primarily considered a philosopher first and psychologist second. Victor Frankl's logotherapy and the existential therapy of Irvin Yalom and Rollo May, among many others, can provide mental health counselors the basis for helping veterans when they struggle with these questions of meaning and purpose. It's the convergence of the training and experience of the counselors and the understanding of the unique experience of veterans that can provide the understanding that veterans are looking for a place of purpose and meaning in their lives. I recall several times in the late 90s where I was serving in the 82nd Airborne Division, where I participated in what was called division review. Every unit in the division was represented on the parade field. We assembled by battalion, and once I was in one of the front ranks. I leaned forward slightly, looked to my left and right, and realized that I was standing out here in the sun with nearly 15,000 of my closest friends. Not only does that give you a sense of how small you are, it also gives you a sense of how you contribute to one of the most important things you've ever done in your life. I felt that sense of perspective often. In a sky full of parachutes, crossing the Sava River in 1996, touring the Maginot Line in France, visiting Arlington National Cemetery in Gettysburg. That sense of history, of meaning, of pride that comes from knowing what it's like to be part of something larger than myself. The simple fact is, many veterans miss the military. For whatever reason, no matter how long they've been out of it, there's some part of them that would go back in if they could. Nearly every veteran I've talked to, present company certainly included, have said that they would go back to Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam in a heartbeat. Many of them struggle to accept that this part of their life is past, that their war is over. It's as if many veterans are walking backwards in life, looking back on what could be romanticized as their best days. They were competent in what they did, and people counted on them. There is a significant change in someone when they go from doing something that was exciting, challenging, even dangerous at times, to doing something that's less so. 
When service members leave the military, and it happens to all of us eventually, they do so with a sense of pride and not a small amount of trepidation. They find themselves in another career, but it may not live up to their own expectations. Without a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives, many veterans can become frustrated, bitter, and angry. Life in the military is not always pleasant, of course. It's very restrictive and often both physically and mentally strenuous. There is much sacrifice, separation from family, frequent moves, potentially even a sacrifice of life. Perhaps not every service member who raised their right hand has the same level of dedication to sacrifice, but each of them understands sacrifice in the basic sense. So why would a veteran be nostalgic about a life of nearly constant change, frequent danger, and one that is often unbearably restrictive? Because, in Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl quotes Nietzsche when he says, Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Veterans find meaning in the work that they do, in the pride of the unit that they're in, in the camaraderie of brothers and sisters that they served with. They understand their purpose, both for small things and for large things. And when they leave the service, they're not certain about how to find that purpose in their post-military lives. They often find meaning and purpose in places that they've served or where they and others sacrificed. In 2014, I was watching the televised reports of the fall of Fallujah, and there were three Marines standing there watching it with me. Two of them had fought and lost friends in Fallujah. There was certainly anger, but there was also a sense of futility and helplessness. What did we do there? Why did we leave? What, above all, was the worth of the lives that were lost? Veterans can even find meaning in the objects that they've collected while they're in their service, in their uniforms, their coins, their plaques, and citations. These objects can almost take on a talismanic quality, reminding them of their service while also telling their story without the veteran themselves having to go into too much detail. PTSD and TBI by themselves doesn't explain this anger, this helplessness, this frustration, this nostalgia. These questions of why and searching for answers are often fundamental to the sense of aimlessness and purposelessness that veterans feel after leaving the service. But in talking about meaning and purpose, what does it mean? What does meaning and purpose refer to? Are they the same thing? Are they different? Sometimes the words meaning and purpose are interchangeable, and sometimes they're very different. Meaning can be something that is important to you. My dogs are meaningful to me. My work is meaningful to me. Life and veterans and freedom are all meaningful to me. I value them. I appreciate them. They satisfy me. Purpose can also be something that's important to you. I find purpose in the work that I do, in the writing that I create, in the effort that I make to support my family. I value them also and appreciate them and they satisfy me. And there's a clue to how I see meaning and purpose differently. Meaning is value that we place on things from an internal perspective, and purpose is value that we receive from an external perspective. Meaning is the internal push, while purpose is the external pull. We put them both together because we need both in our lives to be fully satisfied. Considering purpose as something that brings us value from an external source, it's simply something to do, a task to be accomplished. If I have something to do, record this show, see a veteran client for therapy, write a report, I have a purpose. I have a task to accomplish that will bring about a result. This is quote-unquote work in a sense, something productive that I must do. It's possible to have purpose without meaning. Have you ever had a dead-end job where the only thing it does is put money in your pocket? You didn't enjoy it, it wasn't satisfying to you, but the only reason you did it was because you had to. That's purpose without meaning. And as soon as you find something better, you usually get out of that kind of thing. We had stuff in the military that gave us purpose but didn't mean anything to us. 
Guard duty, mind-numbing hours staring at the same barren hillside just in case an enemy horde suddenly materializes on the other side. Again, a task to be accomplished, but it didn't have meaning. It didn't have an internal drive or satisfaction. But just like you can have purpose without meaning, you can also have something that satisfies you without actually having a purpose. Six hours of playing video games or binge-watching Netflix? Sure, you're entertained, you're satisfied, but nothing was actually accomplished. We don't do anything. It's like soda. It's empty calories. We may find something in our post-military lives that we enjoy doing, but if we don't have that external pull of purpose, then the meaning doesn't go anywhere. We can find something meaningful but not give us a sense of purpose if the job is too simple. Like my example of a dead-end job earlier, if it's assembly line work or sweeping up sawdust at a lumber mill, it's not challenging enough for us to keep our attention. Sure, it satisfies us to the point of meeting a need, but then what? If the purpose is not challenging enough for us, then sometimes it's not satisfying. So finding something that is both meaningful to you and purposeful for you is critical for satisfaction in post-military life. Finding something that you enjoy, meaning, that also gives you a sense of accomplishment, purpose, is a key to finding balance. They don't have to come from the same source either. You can satisfy a sense of purpose in your life by working at your chosen profession and find a sense of meaning by going home and growing a garden. In his book, Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience, Bekele Csikszentmihalyi describes a guy who builds railroad cars for a living and then goes home and works on his rock garden, which includes sprinklers and lights to create rainbows and shadows. So finding meaning and purpose in post-military life is a critical aspect for increasing mental health and wellness. So as always, I'm glad to be able to share some of these insights. Do you agree? Disagree? It would be great to hear what you think. Share them with us by dropping an email to militarymind at FCCSprings.com. Now, coming up on today's interview segment is a conversation with Dr. Jim Bixler, a marriage and family therapist with the Family Care Center. Jim is an Army veteran whose father was a college professor who taught psychology, and Jim was selected for a degree completion program in marriage and family therapy while stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia. He's worked with numerous individuals that have experienced traumatic events and has been providing therapy for over 20 years. Let's get into my conversation with Jim and come back afterwards to talk about this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So, Jim, you served in the Army between Vietnam and, and the first Gulf War and now work as a mental health professional serving those who served. I'm interested mm -hmm. to hear about how you got into the mental health field after your time in the military and why it's so important to you. Actually, I got into the mental health field while I was in the military. I was selected for a degree completion program of all things in marriage and family therapy. And um, when I was doing one of my utilization tours at Fort Carson, just before um, Operation Iraqi Freedom, I thought, we're not ready. Mm. We're not ready for the aftermath of what's going to come. And that's historically been true of every conflict we've ever been in. We don't anticipate the ongoing damage that people who've been in the military have experienced. And so uh, before the deployment, I thought, I need to get some training. And so I um, got some training in eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and began using it with all kinds of people. Um, dependents of military members, some who had 
been sexually assaulted, people who'd been in fires, people who'd been in uh, accidents in which somebody had been killed. Uh, and it was a it was a good preparation for me for when people began coming back. And um, <clears throat> I had lots of experience with that. But after, um, after I retired, I went back to school for my doctorate of psychology degree and, and worked in a, non, a nonprofit for a while and then worked in a partial hospitalization program that you know about. And um, was so privileged to work with so many people who would gradually let their guard down mm -hmm. and talk about things that they were still struggling with. And to this day, I still work with Vietnam-era uh, veterans, plus um, people from the Gulf War, people from Bosnia, mm -hmm. uh, as well as Afghanistan and other such things. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting as, as you were in the field in, say, 2001, you know, mm -hmm. uh, right before Iraq and Afghanistan. I've talked to some professionals at that time. Veteran clients were really Vietnam veterans. Even yeah. Gulf War veterans were yeah. maybe in their 30s or yeah. 40s, right? It was still pretty recent after mm -hmm. after um, 91. But a lot of people were thinking we were mental health was fighting the last wars so to speak and you saw that it was all going to come around again yeah uh, when i first started um, participating with army reserves i worked with a reserve battalion of drill sergeants and all of them were vietnam era vets and i uh, it took a while for them to lower their guard and and uh, really get acquainted with them and some of their stories at that point in my life I didn't know how to be of help to them and uh, I remembered that and I thought okay we're about to repeat that and um, how can you not it's interesting if you look back in our in our fairly recent history, we really didn't know an awful lot about post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. uh, the people, the the nation that probably got us um, understanding a little more was the Israeli Defense Force mm -hmm. and the and the people in mental health that worked with them, and uh, some writing that had been done that kind of. Um, brought people's experience in Vietnam a little more in focus. Um, but we still didn't know an awful lot about the connection of body and mind and how in, um, in trauma those are very much connected. Um, and the more we've learned about that, I think the more effective mental health has gotten at helping people who have experienced really disturbing things. And that's also true with people who just have difficulty with anxiety. I say just. Um, we, we've learned a lot, and I, I've been privileged to um, be able to learn a lot. And I think that idea of it happening in a relatively short time. I joined the Army in 1992. 
Um, and they were even like the senior leaders of the, the global war on terror at the beginning of Iraq. You know, General Peter Pace, commandant of the Marine Corps, was a platoon commander in Vietnam. And so yeah. I served with Vietnam veterans yeah. who had served in, um, you know, the, the later parts of that. And, and a lot of people think, man, Vietnam happened 50 years ago, but we're only one generation removed and still seeing the impact of that. Mm -hmm. The Gulf War, as you mentioned, I was in Bosnia, mass graves, yeah. Katrina, a lot of different trauma. The, the military is an inherently dangerous yeah. occupation, yeah. and there's just trauma everywhere. Yeah. And, of course, it's true about a lot of other areas, not only in military life, but in civilian life as well. You could think of our first responders. You could think of people with the COVID crisis and uh, medical personnel in hospitals who for a while were just overwhelmed by it. And the things that they would see were life and death kinds of issues. And we, we can't quite wrap our head around some of that. Uh, we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to close it up as a file. Okay, that action's been taken care of, and I can file it away. But with trauma, it's not that neat or simple. It's things that we just don't know what to do with it. You know, it may be helpful to kind of talk about what that is, right? Trauma is such a widely used word, right? If my, my son broke up with his girlfriend, that's traumatic, right? And, and it is, it, it's, it's emotionally charged. But here we're talking about um, the psychological trauma related to post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a life and death, yes. right? These are yes. for healthcare professionals. So maybe a little bit about that difference between little t trauma, just really mm -hmm. hard life, mm -hmm. and like the, f the full impact of like life and death trauma. Anytime that we're exposed to um, when somebody is even injured or killed, or even if we just hear about it, um, we begin to picture in our head what's happened. And the outcome is so bad for somebody. And all of us tend to take a little bit of, um, have a sense of responsibility. Well, if I just would have, then maybe the outcome wouldn't have been so bad. And even though we logically know that's not true, what makes trauma is not just the event itself, but the conclusion we come to about ourselves. What does it say about us? And if I had to put it down into a most a generalized statement, it would be, I let somebody down. And that's what we carry around with us. And the, the outcome is so bad for that other person that again, it's not a, it's not something that's concluded. And our mind is not always our friend. Um, it goes, okay, well, you're, you're having this difficulty. I'm going to help you out, so we're going to think about it. And it might start out just as, well, it's hot today. It's not as hot as it was in Afghanistan. And then I begin ruminating about Afghanistan. And it can come around to a season of the year. Um, Somebody may say, I don't know, I'm just so depressed. And if we would just ask the question, is there anything significant about this time of year for you? And it might be two months before the anniversary of some big event that a person experienced. And so 
the unconscious mind is trained to un, to resolve it, and so it keeps thinking about things. And we don't like to think about these things. That's why PTSD is called uh, a disorder of avoidance. We try not to think about it. But our mind goes, well, you need to think about it because it's still a problem for you. And a lot of times, and and, and I think I, I know that I even personally experienced this early on, um, is that uh, many of the veterans that I work with and, and many of the, the ones that you work with, they don't realize that connection. They don't make the connection between my feeling right now and what happened next week seven years ago. Yeah. Um, and, and it's almost like the, the mind wants to help us work, but they also it's like a, a pearl, right? They want to put a protective shell around mm-hmm. this piece of grit. Mm-hmm. And so they want to help you think about it without thinking about it. Yeah. Um, that's a common thing with a lot of veterans. Yeah, and just the makeup of our brain, we have a smoke alarm in a sense on each side of our brain, and it tries to help us. So instead of looking for, um, we look for the slightest sign that maybe something dangerous is going to happen again. So if um, if I patrolled the marketplaces and knew, okay, there are strangers out there and they want to hurt me and my peers, then when I come back here and I go to Walmart, well, it's full of strangers. And so my mind goes, okay, well, this incident right now is like this one back here in the marketplace and so then i begin to be in an emergency kind of mode and that little gland in our head the amygdala it fires off when i'm cooking bacon in the kitchen there's smoke but that doesn't mean there's a fire but the smoke alarm goes well where there's smoke there might be fire and so our physical um, just our physiology tries to protect us from potential what we would interpret as potential danger it's not like it it's like it it's similar but it's not exactly the same thing and so that's why people have panic attacks and um, why they don't sleep well at night, why they're irritable, why they're angry, Um, because these things are still turning over and over and over in their mind. And and that's one of the things, again, that people might not really understand. I had a a veteran probably early on uh, as I started working that he was like, everybody tells me it's all in my head. And I said, well, they're right, but it's not you're making it up. It's all in your brain, right? It, that's the place that, that it's in your head. Um, and, and, and as you'd mentioned, uh, you know, with EMDR and some other things, you, it's important to you to provide simple but effective therapeutic interventions. Um, how can, and we had uh, a couple folks on talking about EMDR before, uh, but what are some of the ways that you have seen some of these interventions help veterans come to an understanding and finally be able to put that file away? It's all about a change of perspective. Um, And so trying to learn, well, what resources do people have available to them? Even dead friends can be a resource. 
um, I might ask somebody, well, what would Joan say to you if he were sitting here right now? What would he tell you? And they think about it a little bit, and they'd say, they might say something like, well, he'd tell me it's okay. He'd tell me to live my life. And they've never thought about that. So when we begin to think about a new idea, it shifts our perspective. And that's true about any learning we do. Something changes in how we perceive things. And then we can think differently, we can feel differently, and we can act differently. it sounds really, it's a simple idea, but we should never confuse simple with easy. Right. And, and the way the brain works and, and, you know, the whole idea of garbage in, garbage out, right? Mm-hmm. Our brain is just operating the way it thinks it should. And so um, neuroplasticity, and, and mm-hmm. we can talk about that, but uh, our brain starts to wire a certain way, so it creates a rut. It's like right. a rut back and forth. Right. And a new perspective is getting us out of that rut which the more often we think in a different way, that strengthens a, a more productive way to think rather than the old yes. unproductive way. Yes. And uh, with certain interventions, that can happen more quickly than a person thinks is possible. They may think, I've struggled with this for 20 years now. It's probably going to take 20 years. And research says no. Research says with certain interventions, you can say three to five times. And the disturbance around that event can diminish very rapidly. Um, But when we work on those things, it creates anxiety as we remember. And so I think there are things that are helpful to do beforehand, which is help people to know Um, how to regulate their own anxiety. And all I mean by that is that there are techniques we can learn that help us to deal with our anxiety. Anxiety, (laughs) the physiology behind it, our central nervous system, which is our brain and our spinal cord, has two states. One is called the sympathetic nervous response. Now, This is not a scientific explanation. I think it's like this, that when when we start waking up, we start breathing more shallow, more frequent, and in a sense that turns on the adrenaline flow. Um, And that's a good thing because adrenaline converts into energy in our body and then we can do something. I can stumble out of bed at 5.30 in the morning and as I keep breathing more shallow, I keep getting more adrenaline, more cortisol, and then I can get things done. But a lot of us are in that state 18 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And so our body is constantly in this state of being in tension and in physical tension, and it's not good for us. We can figure out how to go into the other state, which is a state of being calm. 
And there are lots of exercises that we can learn that can help us to do that. One is just learning how effectively to breathe deeply Mm -hmm. or just focus on now. Our brain can only process. uh, We can only think about so many things at any given point in time. And the number usually comes down five to seven. So if I go outside and focus on five things I can see and really listen for four things I can hear, three things I can feel, two things I can smell, that takes focus. And when I'm focused on that, I let go of things that I ruminate about that just make me more anxious. So when I let go of those, and when I do things like deep breathing, it shuts off the adrenaline flow. Now that's not a, it's not a scientific explanation, but, but that's in and that's really good. I think a lot of veterans um, or, or just people who may not be familiar with therapy in general, they're like, well, I'm going to go in there. I don't know what it's like, but you know, we've we've been in each other's offices and and we have veterans who come in and they can tell that this is a safe space. And I've actually had people for the first time I've met, all of a sudden they feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Now they want to launch into the worst day of their lives, and I have to say, well, let's back off. Yeah. Let's learn some of these calming techniques. Yes. because we can't jump into the worst day of your life. It, it, it's like being thrown in the deep end of the pool, but there's sharks there. Yeah. Uh, what I want to know, I can help people regulate their anxiety in my, in my office, but I want to know they know how to do it outside of my office. Because mm-hmm. when we start thinking about these things that we don't know what to do with, we think about them more. And then we end up... Um, If we haven't learned these skills, then we don't know how to regulate the anxiety when it comes up. So um, that's one of the first things I try to do with people is say, we're not going to touch these traumatic things for a bit until you know how to regulate your own anxiety. And I think a lot of people don't don't really understand how to do that. I mean, yes. again, it's not something that, that's really taught. So you're listening to Inside the Military Mind with Dwayne France, brought to you by the Family Care Center. My guest today is Dr. Jim Bixler, a marriage and family therapist with the Family Care Center. So we've talked in the show about how psychological conditions aren't just made up circumstances, right? It's not just in my guy's head, um, but have a biological basis in our body. We've yes. talked a little bit about that. Um, you're especially interested in one biological aspect of our body that impacts our mental health and wellness, the vagus nerve. Well, it, it's uh, the theory behind this is called polyvagal theory. There are 10 cranial nerves that come out of your skull. If you... Um, if you think of a baby's skull, it's not all solid bone together. As a, as the child grows, well, their head gets bigger, and gradually, where those bones have been separated, they seem together. And my understanding is that those vagal nerves come out of that, and they're just kind of underneath the surface. The largest one is your vagus nerve, and it kind of runs down your neck, and it controls all of the things in your central core. And it's a two-way communication system. Your gut communicates with your brain, and your brain communicates with your gut. Um, There are certain things that 
<coughs> when we get more tense, for instance, the muscle group right between our shoulders toward our mid-back, that can um, stimulate the vagus nerve into, in, in that area to make our body more tense and puts us in the sympathetic nervous response. Mm -hmm. And so we carry this tension around with us all day long. And a lot of times we're not consciously aware of it. Uh, in the military, you're taught to ignore your pain, mm -hmm. to, ignore, to ignore the aches and pains because you, you have to press through. And th that is helpful in accomplishing military missions, but that's why people at 40 years of age have bad backs and necks and knees and ankles and because basically we've been taught to ignore that. And so part of what's helpful is if we can just become more aware of what our body is telling us. It doesn't speak to us in words, it speaks to us in physical feelings. And sometimes if we can just stop and observe, then we might be aware, wow, I'm carrying a lot of tension with me today. I can feel it in my shoulders, I can feel it in my back. Then again, you can do some of these distraction kinds of calming skills that will help you release that. And it doesn't take a lot of time to do it once you've learned them. And these are the sensations, right? This is, uh, we were talking uh, it, just before we started recording about Peter Levine and the body keeps the score, right? Of of like, we physically feel things in our body. We, if this this gut sense, people will talk, it's instinct, right? We don't know where instinct comes from, but we've all had that, you know, I've got, I, I had a old leader used to call it his purple feeling. I got a purple feeling about that. It just feels a little off somehow. That's what you're talking about is these sensations in our body, not just physical conditions sensations but how we physically feel emotions within our body yes and what what happens with trauma in a sense our body sensations get stuck in that so when we experience anything that feels similar our body will feel similar it's the strangest thing uh, but it can be of help to us if we can learn to recognize that sooner and then do some things that help us release that physical tension that we're carrying with us. Sometimes it's visualizing a physical place you've actually been that you really liked and picturing yourself standing at a particular vista and recalling what you saw from your left to your right. If it was at the ocean, what color was the ocean? Was the sky blue? Was it a cloudy day? Were there lots of people on the beach? What did you hear? And it helps if we close our eyes and focus on remembering. What did I hear at that place? And what did I feel? And what did I smell? Just like trauma has lots of negative feelings associated with it, really good experiences have really good feelings associated with it. And when we recall those, our brain doesn't distinguish between being there and remembering. And so our body begins to relax because we begin to feel good 
about that experience we had and our sensory memory of it. And it's unique to everybody, right? It's it's unique to individuals. Um, I, I always use this as an example is, is something that may be unpleasant for people is actually pleasant for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandparents had three or four acres out in the country that was next to uh, a pig farm, mm-hmm. right? And so the smell of pig manure brings yeah. back great memories for me. I mean, it's not like I'm going out and getting a pig manure candle, <laughs> right? But but that's the but but our senses are significant triggers for memories, yes. like you said, both good and bad. And you can have a, a negative sensory experience that can trigger a good memory. Yes. Yes. And um, if we would understand a little bit more about this connection between our body and our mind it would be helpful to us Um, and again a lot of the skills are pretty simple Um, some people learn them in yoga some people learn them when they go fishing some people learn them when they're walking their dog but it's learning to focus on this present moment and in a sense getting out of the past and drawing back from the future because all that's all anxiety is is it's concern where we think the same things over and over and over either about the past or about the future whether that's 10 minutes from now or 10 months from now and there's a fancy word for it, rumination. Rumination never ever leads to good problem solving. It only leads to anxiety. And so if we can learn to interrupt that and say, okay, do I wanna be anxious the rest of this day? And um, I, I try to do this with myself and mm-hmm. not just telling people, but when I realize I'm ruminating, I just ask myself, okay, do you want to be anxious and angry for the rest of this day? And if you don't, then do the things that are helpful for you. And that takes in that act of noticing, right? That's yes. the part of noticing that you're feeling a certain way, yes. whether it's in, in you know, I feel anger in my shoulder blades, right? So if I feel that tension in the shoulder blades, it, it stimulates the vagus nerve, right? If I notice I'm doing that, that gives me a sign that I can, A, what am I angry about? Is there something around here that I'm angry about? But that's where fine-tuning that sense of, of what we're feeling within our body, not physically feeling, but almost emotionally feeling mm-hmm. and what that sense is. Mm-hmm. Yes. And again, those skills can be fairly simple. We just have to practice them over and over and over and connect the awareness of our moment-to-moment living. If something's not going well, it, there's a silly example I use with me. If I see somebody I haven't seen for four years and I can't remember their name, the harder I try to remember their name, the more it evades me because I'm thinking about this as a problem now. And so I remind myself, Jim, just pay attention to what they're talking about and be in this moment with this person. And within two minutes, their name will come to mind. Um, Again, I think these, these are simple ideas 
but it takes some work to learn how to do them um, and how to replicate, have, knowing what elements make up a good day for me. And if I know them, some of those ingredients are a mystery to me. But the more of the ingredients that make for a good day that I know, then I can replicate a good day, even if it doesn't start out very good. And, and again, I think, and, and you've mentioned it a couple times, is we can learn that intuitively almost by mistake, right? Um, mm-hmm. If we're out walking the dog and it's been raining here and, and now we're in that post rain and it feels kind of nice and we can just sort of stumble on that. Yes. The same way if we have a bat and a ball, we can stumble on figuring out how to, you know, yeah. knock it a few yards, but it takes some training yes. to actually play baseball well, right? Yes. To, 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 to train where you're going to hold the bat or, or something like that, right? So you, we can stumble on these things almost by mistake, but it's a skill that can be developed. Yes. And you mentioned it earlier, when we learn a new skill, our brain builds a new neural network for that skill. And the more we use it, the stronger that network gets. So if you think about learning to ride a bike as a kid, you were trying to figure out how to coordinate pedaling and steering and braking and balance. And of course, the last one's the hardest. But eventually, your brain makes that connection. You've fallen over only God knows how many times. But after a while, you balance for... 60 feet and then your brain knows how to do it and then the more you do it the more it becomes muscle memory and you don't have to think about doing it your brain basically says i have this so the connection with these skills is when we realize they work and we use them over and over we're prone to use them more quickly because we know they work and again, it's it's this idea of it can happen quickly, but for some, it's almost like magic. Like, how do you know? Did you just hypnotize me or something, right? Yeah. But it's it's it, this is brain science, right? This isn't yes. you know, in in Freud on the couch or young or all of that early stuff. We just didn't know about brain functioning at that point. A lot of the stuff that seemed to have worked for so long. Well, we, now we know why it works because it's neurological. It's not just psychological, right? They're the right. same thing. So it, you've talked a little bit about learning some of these skills. What are some of the things that our listeners can do for themselves to change the way they think and feel by regulating some of these physical and biological experiences? Well, I think the first one is just having an awareness of, of myself. Do I ruminate a lot? If I do, then that's not helpful. That's problematic. And I'll experience all kinds of anxiety. Now, some of us, again, we've done that for maybe a good portion of our life. And so it just kind of comes automatically. (coughs) There's some ways to be able to tell when these skills that we learn, deep breathing, uh, distraction exercises, visualization exercises, meditation, those are just some examples Um, you have to find ones that are readily available for you. So if somebody says, well, I like gardening, I say, that's great, but it's February and you're not at home. So what skills can, what 
concepts can you take with you no matter where you are that you can use at any place at any time that's very simple to do visualization exercises are like that deep breathing is another one just observing what your physical senses are telling you about your environment just observe it Um, those are just some examples so when we do them also have an awareness of am i feeling calmer so usually when i have people that start practicing these kinds of things they'll say things like this it really does help i feel a lot more relaxed i'm sleeping better um i don't let things bother me as much as i used to so i look for behavioral um, indicators that a person is doing better and these are some of the ways we can tell that it helps us in engaging in some of these exercises you mentioned before about you know seeing five things and hearing four things and and, and things like that um, again going back to the idea of everybody is unique people have primary senses that speak to them more um, mm-hmm. and having gone through this I think my primary senses are smell and hearing right mm-hmm. and so I would be more likely to to you know listen or go smell in the mountain the pine trees and stuff like that where other people it may be visual or or touch like what is the feel right so it's important for people to understand what's unique to them that that they connect with the most and realizing at any given point in time like if we walked outside here the predominant sound we would hear is traffic so it might, I would have to really focus to hear something besides traffic. Another a sense that is like this is smell. Um, here in Colorado, unless you're in a forest, it, the, the smells may be a lot more subtle, and you have to really focus on it. The more we focus on it, the more we're prone to let go of what we've been thinking about that's troublesome for us and again this idea of we always seem to exist in a different time right in our minds right physically we are always in the present but in our minds we're either where we just came from or where we're about to go to right as we were both on our way here we were thinking about where we were about to go to or where we came from and so that idea of this is what what i often tell my veterans on the way home what does your steering wheel feel like right Mm -hmm. where are the cracks that you don't notice because you're not thinking about that but that's taking us out of the future out of the past and into the present and now yeah yeah and while in problem solving, we're drawing from the past and we're trying to creatively think about effective ways of resolving issues, it is not a waste of time to get out of our head from problem solving to just observing the environment we're in. Any creative solutions that we come to, creativity demands that we're not in this pressure-packed environment. 
I think of like uh, composers from the past when they had run into a problem and they couldn't they couldn't resolve this musical movement they were writing. When they began doing something else, their unconscious mind still thought about it and came up with the solution. But the harder they would try to do it in present problem kind of solving, the more frustrated we would they would get. So at times we have to step back from a problem and focus just on something present. And it allows creativity then um, to help us come to new solutions. And so if we have a veteran who's ruminating on, and we'll go back to our earliest conversation, but um, this feeling of after I left my unit, a friend of mine died by suicide, right? Um, I wasn't there to witness the trauma, but that's one of the big T traumas. Goes what you were talking about is what more could I have done? I should have seen and so on, right? But if they're focusing so much on that, you know, what I did wrong or how could they have done that or all of these other things, it's almost counterintuitive to say, okay, I'm going to stop thinking about that and go think about going playing with my kids yes. because I'm focusing on this thing. But playing with your kids can help you process this trauma. Yes. And again, it has to be intentional. I need to play with my my kids. It will help them and it will help me. It will help me set this aside for a bit. And then maybe in the future I can think differently about it. Um, But if we're just constantly thinking the same things over and over and over, we deprive ourselves of sleep and we deprive ourselves of any activity that could be pleasurable. And there's that change in perspective thing, because especially with some of that, and we're talking about, um, you know, traumatic loss here Mm -hmm. specifically, is that... I don't deserve to be happy with my kids, right? They're not happy with their kids, so I don't deserve. Like these are the the thoughts that I'm thinking in my head, which are ultimately unhelpful and keep me caught in that ruminating negative rut. Yes. Yes, exactly. And again, it doesn't lead to a resolution. Mm -hmm. Creativity, a change in perspective that leads to resolution. But just thinking the same old things over and over and over and over and over, that just leads to more anxiety and depression. If I keep walking the same mile over and over again, all I'm doing is being a mile away and I go back and forth. I don't Mm -hmm. go in a new direction, no. I I really appreciated um, uh, your perspective, Jim. I was looking forward to our conversation. Uh, I'm really glad that you joined us on the show today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It was a privilege. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Jim. As always, we'd love to hear what you think. Drop us an email at militarymind at fccsprings.com to let us know what you thought about our conversation. For this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, I'd like to share a bit about Life Stance Health, another behavioral health organization in our community. As I've often said, if everyone who needed mental health support woke up tomorrow and decided they needed to see somebody, nobody would have the capacity. So it's important to share information about other partners in the mental health community that provide the same services as the Family Care Center. Life Stance Health provides outpatient counseling and psychiatric care from Colorado Springs to Fort Collins and beyond. Life Stance is formerly known as Viewpoint Psychotherapy and Heart Center Counseling, two groups that merged to form the Colorado Division of Life Stance Health. Life Stance Colorado is currently over 300 providers strong with more than 30 locations and growing. 
They've served residents in our state in physical locations since 2013 and the state's rural and mountain communities through teletherapy and telepsychiatry since 2018. LifeStance Health works to eliminate barriers to quality mental health care by accepting all major insurances, several of the smaller insurance carriers, Medicaid and Medicare, and many employee assistance programs. They also have income-based self-pay rates. They work hard to make sure that cost doesn't keep you from getting the help that you deserve. LifeStance's therapists and psychiatric providers can address most mental health issues, including anxiety and stress, depression, grief and loss, trauma and PTSD, and more. They often care to individuals, couples, and families for people from the age of 2 through 102. They also serve specialty populations, including active military, veterans, LGBTQ+, and first responders. If you have a child or teenager who's demonstrating concerning behaviors and or emotions, LifeStance has specially trained providers who can uncover what's going on. For example, if your child is struggling with peers, bullying, or ongoing conflicts with you, LifeStance will teach you and your child effective tools for dealing with communication issues and conflicts of all sorts so that you can reclaim healthy relationships and develop better coping skills. If you and your partner could benefit from couples counseling, LifeStance has therapists skilled in this area too. While they can't guarantee that every relationship will be saved through couples counseling, they can say that there's tremendous hope for the vast majority of couples. LifeStance also recognizes that psychiatric medication can play a valuable, helpful role in the lives of many of their clients and offer client-centered psychiatric treatment options for a full range of mental health concerns. LifeStance understands that it can be scary or intimidating to start any kind of therapy. They understand the anxiety that you might feel, so seek to provide a 100% open, constructive, non-judgmental, safe environment in all of their sessions. Whatever your background or struggles, LifeStance accepts you for who you are, just the way you are. If you're unable to attend a traditional therapy session in person in one of LifeStance's office, they offer care through a telehealth platform that's easy to use. The video call is completely secure and confidential, and nothing is recorded or saved. All you need is a steady internet connection, a computer, tablet, or phone, and a quiet private space where you feel comfortable and safe. When you schedule a telehealth appointment, you'll receive a private secure link to your virtual session via email, enabling you, and only you, to connect by video at the time of your appointment. LifeStance offers accommodating hours because they want to be available when you need them. They offer appointments Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., and Saturdays, 7 a.m. to 2 p.m., based on availability. All of us experience tough times that may lead to depression, anxiety, grief, or some other emotional distress. Whatever you're struggling with, LifeStance Health's psychiatrists, advanced nurse practitioners, psychologists, and therapists are there for you. They'll offer comfort for your painful emotions, teach you skills that'll help you navigate your life without feeling overwhelmed or out of control. They'll guide you through the process of healing from hurts and pains that you may have been carrying around for years, and they'll support you in building the life that you deserve. If this sounds like something you'd like to try, call 970-310-3406. If you're ready to address some of the tough stuff that life has thrown your way, reach out. There's no obligation whatsoever, and their client care team will do everything that they can in that initial phone call to help you find the best direction for your specific needs and situation. You can also go to their website and schedule online by going to lifestance.com. Again, to start your journey towards healing and get some emotional health or support, call 970-310-3406 or go to lifestance.com and schedule an appointment online. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. 
I'd like to answer any questions you may have or know what you'd like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email to militarymind at fccsprings.com and there's a chance we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to share that this show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, a private outpatient clinical mental health agency specializing in supporting service members, veterans, and their families. With five locations in the Pikes Peak region and services provided over telehealth, Family Care Center can meet your needs wherever you're at. Find out more about the Family Care Center at fcsprings.com. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for informational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discuss in this episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week, and until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber, inviting you to learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. fcsprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF. And listen to the companion podcast on Podbean.